everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend and hopefully everyone is having a great start to the week as well. A lot of stuff that I want to talk about on the podcast today. I'm going to be getting into some Eternals news that came out over the last day or so. Tickets are now available. There was some news that came out about the, the movie and some details that we didn't know beforehand. So maybe some post credit scenes that we might see in Eternals and so much more. I'm also going to get into the first look that we got of Timothy Chalamet as a young Willy Wonka and so much more. But the first thing that I do want to talk about, again, as I always do every single start to the week, is of course the weekend box office. And this was another big weekend that had another big release, a big anticipated blockbuster coming out this weekend. And that, of course, was the latest in the James Bond saga, the 25th film, No Time to Die, which is Daniel Craig's last run as 007. A lot of anticipation around this film. This film has been delayed since the beginning of last year in April 2020. The the film was really kind of the first one that delayed itself that was a big blockbuster in the pandemic and kind of gave an indication of what would eventually be kind of the domino effect of major blockbusters and really kind of theater going and everything else that was affected by the pandemic and No Time to Die really kind of led that charge and it it started a, a delay monsoon of being delayed until fall of 2020, early 2021, and then, of course, eventually stopping at October 8th of 2021, specifically here, at least, in the North America markets. It came out, I believe, around September 29th, September 30th, and around the UK and a couple of other worldwide markets the week beforehand. But now the North American market has no time to die around, I believe it's it's around 30 or 40 markets now have this film out. And we finally had a debut, and we finally have a at least opening weekend tally of what of how many people really wanted to go see this film what was the anticipation behind it would it do as well as what venom did in the, the weekend before grossing an unexpected 90 million dollars opening weekend what was going to happen would this be the other indication that theaters are back movie going is back and that we can kind of get back into the headspace of a post-COVID pandemic kind of movie thinking aspect. And No Time to Die sort of showed that, but at the same time didn't really kind of show that as well. So I'm going to really kind of get into that and dive into the specifics. So overall, first off, No Time to Die did win the overall weekend. And when we look at the three-day weekend, since this was a holiday weekend, it was Columbus Day weekend and Digitous People Day weekend, it it was a holiday weekend for a lot of people. No Time to Die did have a three-day release weekend of $55 million, and then over the four-day weekend, it also had around a a $55, $56 million weekend, around a $55 million weekend overall for No Time to Die, and that is a little bit below the expectations of what the studio had set going for it and also what a lot of uh, a lot of pundits had going for it a lot of people thought that maybe this could be the first film that could eclipse 100 million dollars at the box office i had around 60 to 70 million dollars to potentially be where this film could land but it came in a little below expectations but it, it didn't come down by a whole lot it wasn't like it was a 30 40 million dollar gross and it came down 20 million dollars below that it was it was only five 
five million below this the studio expectation of what this film was going to do. And there was I think there's a bunch of reasons for why that ultimately came to be the case. But first, I, I do want to say that No Time to Die with the $55 million day opening is the fourth highest grossing bond opening in the Daniel Craig era. Skyfall still remains number one at $88.3 million. Spectre comes in at number two at $70.4 million. And then right below that would be Quantum of Solace, which was the second Bond film in 2008 that had $67.5 million. And then right below that, of course, would be No Time to Die with $55 million at the box office. So again, when you look, when you stack it up against those numbers, it doesn't look good, especially when you see that the last two Bond films did gross $80 million, $70 million. You would expect this one to do a little bit better than that, especially because this was kind of event, eventized as the the epic conclusion to Daniel Craig's run, and everyone seems to love what Daniel Craig has done. You could say he's one of the best Bonds, if not the greatest Bond of all time. There were so many different things kind of going into this film. It was being labeled as an epic. It had a long runtime. It had kind of all these things that were billed as if we maybe if we were in a pre-pandemic setting, that maybe it would maybe potentially could eclipse $100 million in the North American market. But that evidently was not the case. And again, kind of going to some of the reasons I think why this this really did turn out to be the case was, number one, you, you didn't have the actual market of people that go usually go see these Bond films show up for this film. And usually a Bond film attracts an older demographic than maybe something like a Venom Let There Be Carnage or something within the Marvel Cinematic Universe usually does. Well, that's usually an, a younger demographic. You usually get people, maybe middle-aged, senior citizens that go see these movies. And with the pandemic, the pandemic is affecting majority and, and has a great impact on those people. So they might be a little bit more cautious of going out to the theaters right now than maybe say someone that's my age around 24, or maybe a little bit younger or a little bit older, still in their 20s, maybe than someone who's maybe 50, 60, or even 80 years old. And some people have pre-existing conditions. Some people are just older and the older community is more susceptible to getting COVID-19 and having graver effects to it than somebody that's a little bit younger at this point right now and I think those those demographics are a little bit hesitant I'm not even just going to the movies but just really kind of going out in general unless they absolutely need to so I think it's going to be interesting to see if No Time to Die has legs maybe in the next couple weeks when maybe people feel safer enough to go to the theaters or maybe it'll be interesting to see what the digital footprint of No Time to Die will be if people decide to wait until it comes onto VOD till it comes to, to DVD or something along those landscapes instead of going out to the theaters because I know people in that I was talking to this weekend that are asking me if No Time to Die was on a streaming service and if they could watch it at home and I said no you have to go to the theaters so I think people are still in that mentality and they really want to go see this film but some people might just want to watch this at home and then go to the theaters at this point and they might just wait it out instead of going to the theaters and either paying all that money or if they're not feeling safe enough to go out and, and, and see this film in the theater with a bunch of people. So that's really kind of one reason why I think this film didn't do so well in, in the North American market. It came a little bit below the expectations, but I think another big reason is also the fact that even though No Time to Die is a is a big franchise, and when you think James Bond, it's an event picture, people go out to see them, and that really is true, but whereas we have films that are big here, like an Avengers film, or a Star Wars film, or a Jurassic Park, or a Jurassic World, 
world film that does really well here in the North in the North American markets and grosses $150, $200 million at the box office its opening weekend, James Bond has never really been that here in North America. Sure, it does well. Again, we see with the last two Bond films, $88 million, $70 million openings. That's good. But when you look at the opening numbers for a Daniel, uh, not even a Daniel Craig, but a James Bond film, it's never in North America hit that $100 million mark. And it, I think it's just because people may not relate to James Bond all that much, or maybe people aren't really excited about a James Bond movie, or maybe people just, it, it, it's not as, as generational as maybe James Bond used to be at one point. But here in the North American markets, maybe because it's really kind of based in the UK, James Bond just has gravity and has weight and attracts people here in these markets, but it doesn't have that overall big feeling. And I think you, the numbers don't really show that than it does really in the worldwide markets. And so I think when we look at the North American numbers, James Bond isn't really, isn't a film that really kind of does well here in North America. If you just look at the past few Daniel Craig films as a measuring stick, even though Skyfall, which is the highest grossing James Bond film of all time with over a billion dollars, a majority of that money came from the international markets. It only made 27.5% of its total box office intake here domestically. It only made $304 million compared to the $804 million that it made in, in the international markets. And then the same thing could be said about Spectre, where only 22% of Spectre's intake, where it grossed $880 million worldwide, only 22.7% of that was made here in the United States, which is basically equivalent to around $200 million, whereas 77.3% of the intake of Spectre's money came from the international markets, which is around $680 million. And then again, you look at something like Casino Royale, where that made $616 million worldwide, only 27% of that was was made in the North American markets. It made $167 million. And then internationally, it made 72%, which is $449 million in the 616 worldwide intake. So again, it, you look at the, it, it, it becomes a pattern at this point where James Bond is that rare is that rare franchise that really kind of relies not just on one specific marker, but relies on all kinds of markets around the world. Whereas something like the MCU, I always say this, it, Avengers Endgame would not be the global behemoth it was without the, the markets, especially here in the United States, but also of China as well. It would not have made $1.1 billion its opening weekend if it were not for the the box office run that it had in the China markets its opening weekend. And then same here, same thing here in the United States where it made over $330 million its opening weekend. So some franchises rely on certain markets, but James Bond is, is a market that relies on the UK, North America, China, Japan, the Middle East. It relies on all different markets to become a major, major global phenomenon and a major, major success in its overall box, box office intake, which is why even though the $55 million is something to definitely look at and see, well, it definitely underperformed here. James, at least when you look at the Daniel Craig run, 
James Bond has not done gangbusters here in the United States in the North American markets. The big number to really kind of focus on here with No Time to Die is that inner that worldwide number, which as of right now, No Time to Die has around three hundred and thirteen to fourteen million dollars worldwide, which after two weeks is a really really solid start for No Time to Die. Now, will the film be able to recuperate its market and be able to recuperate its budget, which is around two hundred fifty million dollars before marketing? There's around a reported a hundred to one hundred fifty marketing spent on this film, so that is probably around $350 million. And then, of course, with especially with No Time to Die, because of the circumstances that not just this film, but a lot of other films that were delayed because of the pandemic are facing, No Time to Die took on a lot of late fees because of the marketing and because of the advertisement deals that they had in place at the time before the pandemic really kind of rocked everything. They had to delay this film, which was a really big hit on their budget that they're going to have to tack onto that as well. So this film already has around a $400 million budget after marketing and after these late fees of of delaying the film that you add on top of the $200 million plus budget that you made just making the movie. So this film already has an uphill battle to climb. And will it make $800, $900 million to kind of break even, be in the red? It's going to be hard to say. And and I'm not really sure it's going to be able to make that kind of money. However, I do think that when Eon decided to put this film out on October 8th and say that we're going to do this and they agree with Universal and MGM, which are, their, which are the partners that help release this film on so many different markets, I think they came to the conclusion that even if we make half of what we are supposed to make, I think they will come out okay with this. And I think they will come out satisfied that people want to go see these films. They still are gravitating towards the James Bond franchise, which gives them confidence to make more in the future after this run from Daniel Craig. And so I think that with $313 million already, and a lot of that coming from the international markets, around 200 or so of it, I think that is a, a great number to really be at two weeks in and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the next couple weeks moving forward again there's not there is some competition happening right now but this weekend i think here in the north american markets there could be a little bit of competition here because of halloween kills it is the halloween time the first the the rebooted 2018 halloween film was a big success it was very popular so that film could eat away at some of the demographic for the new Halloween film and and retain that number one spot. And then, of course, the next week you have Dune, which is a highly anticipated blockbuster coming out as well, which is also doing very well in the international markets in the last couple of weeks. So it'll be very, very, very interesting to see what happens with no time to die in the next couple of weeks. But I think for two weeks out, looking at that worldwide number, it is a very good start for this movie. I do think, again, it's not going to be a major success. It's already in the top 10 highest grossing films of 2021 worldwide. I think it'll probably end up between that five or six number, at least as of right now, before the year is out. I do think that we're going to see more James Bond films coming up in in the future as well. But again, for $313 million, I think that is a really nifty start here in the United States, not so well. Again, came in below expectations. There's no denying that. But again, 
when you look at the history of these movies, you it's not you shouldn't really look at the North American market as something as a major gauge of the of specifically the James Bond franchise and that oh this it didn't do so well it tanked nobody's interested in James Bond no people are still interested in James Bond and the communities that that really are important to the James Bond brand are still thriving and are still showcasing that this franchise does have a lot of impact still and people still want to see these films overall. Now, when you look at the North American market, you could say right now that other than comic book films, uh, and, and and besides Dominic Toretto and his Fast Family, nobody else has really done all that well in the in the North American market, and and I think that is true. And again, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in these next two weeks before we get Eternals on November fifth. Which to me, I haven't said this before, but I do believe that when there's a lot of speculation, not really speculation, but a lot of predicting of what could be the first film to break over 100 million dollars at the domestic box office in its opening weekend, and. And a lot of people thought that maybe it could have been Shang-Chi. A lot of people thought that maybe it was going to be No Time to Die. I have always pertained, and I still pertain it, especially now, especially after seeing what Venom Let There Be Carnage did last weekend, that Eternals is going to be the film that grosses over $100 million its opening weekend at the box office, be the first film to do that since Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker in late 2019. So, uh, again, I, I do think that the, the North American box office is still very peculiar about the films that they go see and and no time to die it, it didn't seem like that film was able to really kind of do that the demographic that they needed didn't really kind of it showed up but it didn't show out the numbers that were going to put this film over the top into that kind of number that venom let there be carnage experienced a weekend beforehand so uh, again i think it showcases that some people are still hesitant to go to the movies right now but also i think it gave a positive indication that i think in the worldwide box office and international markets if you really want to go see a film, you will go see a film. And kind of like how we were saying that about Venom last weekend, I think we're saying that about No Time to Die this weekend, especially in a lot of international communities around the world right now because of how they gravitate towards the James Bond franchise. And I think that's the case of what we're seeing right now. So again, I think it, again, No Time to Die is showcasing that James Bond is a worldwide brand, one of those very unique franchises, maybe the rarest franchise of relying not just on one or two or three big powerhouse markets in the world, but relying on all kinds of markets around the world that make James Bond a huge success in its run in every single film that it does. So overall, guys, that is the No Time to Die box office run that it's experienced opening day weekend. I do want to run through real quick the rest of the uh, of the box office this weekend. So starting off with coming in at number two, which was the reigning champion last weekend and taking a 64% drop was Venom Let There Be Carnage, which grossed another $31 million at the box office domestically and now has $141 million at the box office. Internationally, it has $43 million and it now has a cumulative total worldwide of $185 million. So uh, again, we were all wondering what is the steep drop going to be for Venom Let There Be Carnage? If you look at a lot of the track records for a superhero comic book movie, usually the second weekend drop is really big. And especially in the pandemic right now, we've seen a pattern of a lot of people really want to see the film go opening weekend. And then usually you might get repeat viewings that weekend and that opening weekend. And then it's second, third weekend, you see these kind of big steep drops. Shang-Chi kind of saw that a little bit, not to the steepest effect that something like a Black Widow saw, but it saw 
saw a steep drop, and Venom Let There Be Carnage had a steep drop as well. However, 64% looking at that number is bad. When you look at that $31 million, considering the, the era that we're in right now, still in the pandemic, and how I think a lot of films would kill for $31 million just in its opening weekend, I still think it was a sustainable drop. And I'm always the one saying that anything above a 50% is not good whatsoever. So if you go 50 or more, that is a steep, steep drop. 50 below, that is a steady drop. And, and I think, again, it's, it's it's a steep one for a second weekend, but when you look at that number and where it comes from, from the $90 million, I think that's a, a sustainable drop. And I think Sony is very happy for where they're positioned right now with this franchise. And then coming in at number three, the, the reigning second spot of the champion, if you want me to call it, that coming in at number three is the Adams Family 2 grossing another $10 million at the box office that now has $31 million domestically, adding $5 million worldwide, internationally, and a worldwide accumulation gross of $37 million at the box office. And then coming in at number four is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which grossed another $4.3 million and now has $212 million at the domestic box office, $189 million internationally, and overall has four. $102 million worldwide at the box office. So again, for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, it's just continuing to churn out money. It's staying in the top five at this point in time right now. I think it's just absolutely amazing what this film has been able to do. It has, it has again, $402 million worldwide. That is the sixth highest grossing film of 2020 at this point right now. The next film that if it wants to eclipse that would be Godzilla vs. Kong, which now has a worldwide accumulation of $467 million. So that's the next kind of film that I think Shang-Chi is eyeing at this particular moment in time, and it's still the highest grossing film of the domestic box office right now, and again, I think that is a huge, huge accomplishment for what Shang-Chi was able to do with the film itself, the, the story that it tells, and the fact that Marvel, once again, continues, the MCU particularly turn, continues to churn out these amazing characters that people gravitate towards to and it, it really doesn't matter what new what if it's a if it's a new character if it's an old character if it's a new part of the MCU people will still go out to see these films which is why I have Eternals being the first film to gross over a hundred million dollars at the worldwide box office I think that's going to attract a lot of people to go out and see that movie that I think you're going to see a lot of communities kind of come together and it's going to raise the bar for that movie in ways that we haven't seen so far in this pandemic era. So for Shang-Chi, I think it gives a good indication of where Eternals is going to go. And I think Venom was also a good indication, even though it's not quote unquote in the MCU. I think it gives a good indication of where the comic book genre is at right now. And I think Eternals is going to be that next one to move forward and kind of in, in the pent up, I think culmination of what will be one of the highest grossing films in the last two years with Spider-Man No Way Home. But we'll save that for the next month or so when we get closer to that release date but for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings uh, a continued great run so far in its box office hole then coming in at number five is the Sopranos prequel The Many Saints of Newark which grows another 1.4 million dollars and now has 7.3 million dollars domestically 2 million dollars internationally for a worldwide total of 10 million dollars now the big story with The Many Saints of Newark that came out over the weekend was that this Sopranos film is is not doing so well at the box office, but I always looked at these kind of mid-budget films as doing potentially really well 
on HBO Max. And I think this film is definitely one that could have benefited towards being on HBO Max. So I think a lot of people associate The Sopranos with HBO, and and even though it's a movie, they're gonna th- th- their first look might be to go to HBO before wondering if this is actually a film that's in that's in theaters. And again, I think because it has that HBO element, people would rather stay home and watch this and go to the movies because I think they're also familiar with The Sopranos on their television screens than on the big screen as well. And unlike something like In the Heights where it didn't do so well maybe at the box office and maybe you're wondering if maybe people would watch this on HBO Max, that wasn't the case. It seems like this is really one of the cases that we were hoping to see in which the Many Saints of Newark doesn't do well in theaters. However, it did apparently gangbuster numbers on HBO Max, grossing I think around a million in per household or one million overall in the households that Samba TV was able to record. And, and again, Samba TV is one of the main g- metrics that we have. It's not measuring every single household, but it gives us a gauge and idea of the popularity around this film on streaming. It seems like it still is, and at the time in, in its opening weekend, was a film that really a lot of people wanted to see. They were just looking to see it on HBO Max instead of going out to the theaters to see them. So again, I think this, this bodes well for the Sopranos universe moving forward because I think, if anything, even even though this film is going to lose a lot of money at the box office and, and not be able to recuperate its budget, which was around $50 million, I think for what Warner Media could see, what, what the executives over at HBO Max could see, is that maybe if they're able to convince David Chase to go back to HBO and HBO Max, that maybe they could do a limited series or they could do TV movies with these films. Because I think people feel more comfortable watching these at home because they're more familiar with these characters, again, at home than on the biggest screen possible, which is still, it was really cool to see that. But I, this is definitely a, it's definitely a movie that you could watch in theaters HBO Max and I still think you get the same experience in both in both mediums no matter what whereas I think if you were to watch something like No Time to Die at home instead of on the big screen you'd be missing out on that experience and I think it would dilute your enjoyment of the movie whereas with again Sopranos I think you would still get the same enjoyment if you were to see it in theaters or in streaming as well but again I think this is it's 50-50 it's a big win for the streaming side of this and I think that could be the future of if David Chase wants to continue this era of The Sopranos, that's where you could go. And the theater aspect just didn't really cut it, but I think it's because more people want to go see it on HBO Max. And again, that could also be like I was saying with Black Widow. And with a lot of these other films that Disney Plus did as well, where you're losing that money in the theaters. And, and if it was just theatrical only, that could definitely have been the case where all that money, all those eyeballs would have went to the theaters. And maybe The Many Saints of Newark does a lot better in theaters if we're not in a pandemic situation and it's not day and date release on HBO Max as well. So there's a lot of variables to think I, I think you can take with this. It'll be very interesting to see where they kind of go with the future of this franchise moving forward. And then Coming in at number six this weekend, staying at the number six spot, was Free Guy grossing $1.2 million, $119 million overall domestically, and overall worldwide, it has $327 million. And this film came out basically almost two months ago in the middle of August, and it's still not out of the top 10, which is absolutely incredible. So again, Free Guy still remains one of the great box office success stories of, I think, not just the summer, but of the entire year. And so I'm really, really happy for that film what it's able to do. Then coming in at number seven was Dear Evan Hansen, grossing another million dollars at the box office and now has 
$13 million domestically. And also, it doesn't have any, any international markets open up for it right now. So it's still worldwide at that $13.7 million opening. And then coming in at, at number eight was the brand new release, Lamb, which stars Numi Rampage. And it grossed a, a million dollars at the box office. And it only had a theater count of $583 million. So that's pretty impressive. And it still has a million dollars domestically here as well. Coming in at number nine was Candyman, grossing another $710,000 and now has $60 million domestically at the box office. And coming in at number 10 was the, a special event, the Met Opera Boris Goynev, which grossed $387,000. So again, that is really your top five box office at this moment in time from this weekend. Your top five, or excuse me, not your top five, but your top 10, which again, coming in at number one was No Time to Die. Number two was Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Number three was The Adam's Family. Family 2. Number four was Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Number five was The Many Saints in Newark. Number six was Free Guy. Number seven, Dear Evan Hansen. Number eight, Lamb. Number nine, Candyman. And number 10, Met Opera Boris Goynev. So that is your top 10 of the box office weekend this week. What was your surprise this weekend? Was it the fact that maybe No Time to Die came in a bit below expectations this opening weekend? What do you think about the worldwide total for No Time to Die? What about the drop from Venom, Let the Breed Carnage? The Adam's Family 2, Shang-Chi, Many Saints in Newark, the fact that it is seems like a bigger hit on HBO Max than in theaters. Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. I really like to know what you guys think about the weekend box office. Now to move on from the weekend box office over to some movie news that is going on right now. And I'm gonna start off with something that that's fairly, fairly recent. It came out actually this morning, and that is the first official trailer for the fifth installment in the Scream franchise that is simply just titled Scream. And we got a brand new poster over the weekend for this film and it's directed by the Radio Silence team of Ready or Not and that was kind of the big film that came out with Samara Weaving in 2019 I believe. It seems like a long time ago but it was 2019 that that film came along and it sees the return of the big three of the Scream franchise. You have Nev Campbell coming back, Courtney Cox, David Arquette and you have a bunch of brand newcomers such as Melissa Barrera from In the Heights. You have Jenna Ortega and Dylan Mennett from the 13 Reasons Why show. And so it boasts, uh, of course, the old cast with a bunch of awesome newcomers to the franchise as well. And there wasn't really kind of anything known about this film until we got the, the the synopsis of the film over the weekend with the the upcoming poster that came out as well. So this is how the synopsis kind of reads out from Paramount Pictures. 25 years after a streak of brutal murder sh shocked the quiet town of Woodsboro, a new killer has donned the ghost face mask and begins targeting, targeting a group of teenagers to resurrect secrets from the town's deadly past. So... I remember when this was kind of coming to fruition and really kind of even going back years ago. I remember in 2011 when the great, late, great Wes Craven was still alive. He wanted to do a brand new kind of Scream trilogy. It was going to start out with Scream 4, but unfortunately, it didn't do so well at the box office and also didn't do so well critically, and that kind of killed the plans there. But there was kind of some formulation of maybe doing another film down the line, and then unfortunately, Wes Craven passes away, and it seemed like there was never going to be more Scream films, at least, because there was a Scream television show on MTV that was on for a couple seasons, but in terms of seeing Sidney Prescott again, seeing the ghost face, the old ghost face costume that was so iconic in the late 90s, 
we seemed like we would never ever get that uh, again until a couple years ago after Ready or Not, these guys that, that did a really good job with this one little small indie horror film that I had a blast with came along and it seemed like they were going to take on doing a brand new Scream film. And at one point, it seemed like it was going to be a completely reboot. It wasn't going to feature Sidney Prescott. It wasn't going to feature Dewey or any of the characters that we knew from the old films until it came about that David Arquette was going to come back and then Courtney Cox. And then, of course, there was kind of a back and forth if Nave Campbell was going to come back. She she signed on to the role, which there's a really cool story of how she was convinced by the Radio Silence team of coming back to the role of Sydney Prescott. And then it just kind of went on from there. Once they got those big three, they were able to get a, a, a young core of new cast members alongside with them as well. And now we have a brand new screen film. So it's a really interesting story for how this came along. But the fact that we're getting it, I think, is really, really exciting. I'm a big fan of the screen franchise, even though it's, it's a horror franchise. It's got a lot of comedy in there as well. And I just love how it took the horror landscape and kind of twisted it on its head, kind of being a, a satire for horror movies and, and, and playing with the rules of, of the horror genre in a way that we hadn't seen before. It was really, really, really cool. And I think it was so, it's so different from any horror genre which is why when you got to something like Scream 4, it was very redundant. There was anything new or special about it. And I'm, that's why I'm hoping with this new Scream film, there's something new and different about it. And even though I'm happy to see the original three back and it's great to see them, I do hope that there are more supporting characters in this line of, in this film and that we get to really kind of see the new kids on the block come in with Dylan Minnette and, and Melissa Barrera, who I'm really excited to see her follow up from In the Heights. And I thought she would be a supporting character, but it seems like she's really kind of the new Cindy Prescott in this film. She's the one that this ghost face is targeting. So to kind of see that mentor-mentee relationship between Cindy Prescott and her in, in this in this trailer, or that's where it's hinting at, I think it'd be really, really, really cool to see where Sydney's kind of of, of coaching her and, and mentoring her through all this. And, and kind of you can, you, in, in, in the era of, of wanting to have communities of shared trauma, the fact that you have these two women that have gone through this and going through it and you can rely on one another, I'm, I'm interested to see how they kind of go into that. And it seems like Dewey is kind of going through some demons of his as well. And, and it's great to see Court Cox in there, but I really do hope that this focuses on more of the the younger kids and also the the technological revelations that we that we now have in the present day than he did even in the late in the 2000s or early 2010s or even in the late 90s. It's different nowadays, so I'm really interested to see how they kind of take that approach as well. And and, and I'm really excited to see what kind of of horror landscapes that they go, what kind of of traps and and sequences do they do that are different that we hadn't seen before, but also honoring, of course, what came beforehand. And that's what Radio Silence also said when they signed on with, with Nev Campbell and Nev Campbell was convinced to come back on was she didn't want to do this because it was going to be without Wes Craven. And Wes Craven was the one that guided her through this franchise and all these people throughout it. And without him, why would you do it? But it seemed like that this this team really kind of showcased that they were going to handle this thing with honor and love and carry this franchise moving forward, honoring what came before, but also doing something that is a staple to them as well. And, and I really hope that they're going to follow through with that. So the first trailer, I really liked it. I enjoyed it. I liked some of the teasing aspects that we got throughout it of new things that we could see as well. Doesn't show a whole lot, which I think for a first trailer, you don't need to do that. I think you 
establish the new characters, the old characters. We're going to get a mixture of both of them all together at the same time. Seeing Ghostface back again was awesome as well. So I think, again, it's really, really kind of cool to see this. And I'm really excited to see this film come out in January of 2022. So again, I just think that... For for a lot of people, I, I think that this is going to be a, a really, 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 really cool film. And also the fact that for even though that I anticipate some really cool January films that have come out over the last couple of years, I think overall in, in terms of really kind of anticipating a blockbuster in January that really hasn't really happened yet. And I think Scream could potentially be the film that does that because I think people like this franchise and it's a horror franchise and you wouldn't really expect a horror franchise or a horror film to come out, a big horror film to come out in the month of January. So I think this is one that could maybe push the January market into some really cool territory that we've seen with other franchises do with with months that we hadn't seen like September or October or even August and really kind of turn it on its head and maybe just maybe or like what shang chi did in september and and really kind of push the 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 scream franchise into really kind of taking over the january market as well so that'll be very interesting to see as well but this film is coming out on january 14 2022 looking forward to it i think we'll see probably another trailer come out in in november or december right around before the film is set to release on january 14th so what do you guys think about the, the the trailer that came out the poster let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts now moving away from the world of Ghostface into the world of Wonka and over the weekend we got our very first look of Timothy Chalamet as a very young Willy Wonka taking over the role that was made famous of course by Gene Wilder in the in the 70s that was just a great great kids kids family film and I think this was a little bit of, of a surprise when the when Wonka was first announced to be in the works. It was going to be kind of showcasing the beginnings of Willy Wonka, making the, the Chocolate Factory, and, and how he came to be the person that we see in Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And, and Timothy Chalamet was the person that came into this role. It's going to be a musical. We're going to see Timothy Chalamet sing. And when what does he look like? Does he look like a young Gene Wilder? What is the costume going to be? And Timothy Chalamet on his social media accounts did come out with a couple of images of what he's going to look like and overall i think the costume looks looks good it doesn't really it didn't really kind of shock me or, or wow me but it looked like a young version of, of willy wonka in a way and again i don't think you can go wrong with timothy chalamet especially he's a, a star in the making it'll be very interesting to see what happens with him after dune and he's also somebody that's an incredible actor one of the if not the biggest bright spot in the future of hollywood moving forward people are labeling this guy as the next big big thing in the industry and i love the work that he's done so far in the last couple of years so to see him kind of take on more big franchise film roles this is definitely one of them is going to be really exciting to see and he was featured in this times article kind of talking about his career and, and where it's going after this and he talked about making wonka and talking about how it's something where it's it's just going to be fun, goofy silliness. It's not going to take itself too seriously, which if you've seen his past movies, there are a lot more dramatic roles than he's doing with Willy Wonka right now. And he's going to be singing and dancing. He's been choreographing and rehearsing in the last couple of weeks and months. And so he's really, I think, I think prepping himself for this. And I think we could see a side of Timothy that we haven't really seen before. Maybe one that's a little bit goofier than we're going to get. Because even though he's in a big franchise film 
with Dune in coming out in a couple weeks that is very much a serious role and there's not a lot of goofiness you can do in that film and in that material but with Wonka you can have a little fun with it and, and, and I think he's going to make Willy Wonka his own he's not going to really kind of mimic what Gene Wilder did of course but I think he's going to come in and do something different and cool and if this was someone else other than Timothy Chalamet maybe I would seem a little bit more hesitant but knowing that you have that caliber of an actor in this role I'm very curious to see how it all comes together and I'm really interested to see when we get the first trailer for this, which probably isn't going to be coming for another year or so since this film is coming out in 2023. I'm sure they're just starting to film now. So we, we still got ways to go, but I think now I've seen the costume. I've seen set photos of it. Show me everything in in action as it's happening. So I think that's the next step moving forward with Wonka. But what do you guys think about the first look of Timothy Chalamet as Willy Wonka? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. Now to move over to the MCU and talk about things that are Eternals, which is the next big Marvel project that is set to come forth on November 5th, 2021. Originally set to come out last November of 2020. Again, because of the pandemic, a lot of things like that had to be shifted to this year and we are finally going to get this film as it was confirmed yesterday by Fandango the tickets are now on sale to buy for this film it's only a couple weeks out right now which is exciting the world premiere seems to be happening next week we're probably going to be hearing reactions coming next week for this film so a lot of exciting stuff coming for this film it's directed by Academy Award winning director Chloe Zhao and there's, there's been so much talk about this film so to finally almost see it happening in the next couple weeks is really 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 exciting it's an phenomenal ensemble cast of Angelina Jolie, Sama Hayek, you have Gemma Chan, you have Richard Madden, Kit Harington, Kumail Nanjiani, Brian Tyree Henry. I mean, the list goes on and on and on for this movie of, of who's in it and, and, and the caliber of acting that is a part of it on top of the brilliance of Chloe Zhao, both as a screenwriter and a director coming into this. It is really, really exciting. On top of the tickets being announced, we also got some brand new posters, which is kind of typical in MCU fashion. This is how they usually roll out the ticket sales. We got a brand new IMAX poster, Adobe po uh, poster. We also had an IMAX 3D poster. There were, and they were all really, really, really cool. I love kind of the motto posters that they come up with with the for these films. The real D3D one is awesome. I love kind of it's just black and white, and it's a silhouette of the Eternals kind of looking out on a cliff, all standing, kind of assembled along the line. It looks awesome. You have, I think the IMAX one looks grand and beautiful and gorgeous. So I'm really excited for this film and of course we also got the character posters for all 10 of the Eternals so if you love one that's with Angelina Jolie if you want to love that if you love one that's with Kit Harington or excuse me not Kit Harington but with Richard Madden and so on and so forth I think that or with Sama Hayek or Gemma Chan and, and Brian Tyree Henry and and again the list goes on and on and on I think there's definitely one for you in this film but along with not just the posters and the tickets on sale Fandango also was able to talk to Chloe Zhao about the film and we did learn some brand new details going into the movie. Not, not, not a lot of details, not stuff that'll be spoiler or anything like that, but... Again, I think it just gives a, a great focus into what to expect for this film because even though we've seen the trailers, I don't really think a lot of people know what to expect with this movie. But uh, but again, I, I think we can't question it enough because we've, we we just questioned it with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings and look how that film is doing right now, both critically and financially. But I think with Eternals, you don't know if this is set in the present. You don't know if it's set in the past. Is it is it a combination of both? Where, where have these Eternals been? What are they? What are they doing? And so I think there's a 
lot of questions going forth with this film and Chloe Zhao was able to kind of talk about that a little bit so according and also Nate Moore who's one of the producers behind this also talked about it as as well so in terms of the timeline because in the trailers we've seen things that are in the past and the present and it seems like 60% of the film is going to be set in the present day and then 40% will be in the past. So we'll be able to kind of see how the Eternals kind of came together, what drew them apart and and what they're looking to fight in the present day post Avengers Endgame. And Chloe Zhao also kind of talked about when it came to the connections of the MCU, is this something that is gonna kind of connect with everything? Again, we learned that it's gonna deal with the snap and post-snap and Thanos, but is it gonna to connect to anything else? We've got some some name drops of the Avengers and 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 Avengers Assemble, Eternals Assemble, and Vibranium. Is this really gonna be a big connecting base film? And this is what Chloe Zhao had to say about it. The film completely stands alone. If you know half the universe disappeared and it came back, that's all you need to know to watch this film. But what happens in this film will have huge implications on the future and also there was a new featurette that came out in which Kevin Feige talks about how this film is going to change the MCU forever in some way shape or form so that has a lot of people thinking are there going to be mutants in this movie are the are some Avengers going to meet up with the Eternals what's going to happen with this film and how it connects to the overall MCU and what's also interesting is that Chloe Zhao did let out that there are going to be not one, but two post-credit scenes. And you know how sometimes we'll get one post-credit scene that is a real huge implication for what the MCU has in store moving forward in the grander scale of things, and then you have one that maybe connects to the next film within that character's that, that, that character series, or one that's just a little kind of goofy? Well, it seems like, according to Chloe Zhao, that both these post-credit scenes are vital, and this is what she had to say about both of them, indicating that yes, there is going to be two post-credit scenes. Don't just stay for the first one. Also stay for the second one too. They are equally as important in weight and both have big surprises for you. So maybe one is on the grander scale of things and maybe one's a little bit more intimate and one that'll deal with the Eternals film series moving forward. But again, I think what's amazing and so exciting about this is that Chloe Zhao is somebody who, who has a who comes across as just like an indie filmmaker, but her ambition, her mind, thinks in grand global scale. And you've seen her do intimate films, and this feels intimate, this movie, The Eternals. However, it's grand in, in, in scope and scale, and it's so exciting to see what she's gonna do with this film. She also revealed that this is going to be the, the second longest runtime for an MCU film, clocking a little bit above Avengers Infinity War, in which in terms is going to come in at around two hours and 37 minutes. So this is going to be a long one. This is going to be a doozy. And I, and I think that's the right kind of runtime for a film like this, where you're going to be going between different timelines. You want to be able to let a film breathe, tell the story you want to tell. And even though I love Chloe Zhao as a, as a filmmaker... And she, she does amazing things as a director. One of her greatest strengths that I feel like people don't talk about enough is what she's able to do as a writer. So I'm really excited to see what she does given a long run time like this, given what she's able to do with characters. And, and one of the great things about what she does with characters is give them so many layers. And I'm really excited to see how she gives all 10 of these characters and more this depth and emotion, these layers that maybe we hadn't seen in an MCU film before. So I'm really, really, really excited about that and seeing what she's going to be able to do. And also one of the things that, that, that I love 
about these Marvel Cinematic Universe films that I think makes every single one of them unique and is why these films have lasted forever, why they're always successes no matter what, and why they do so well and they've been able to sustain their success for so many years consecutively is the inspirations that these directors come in with these films for and what they want to pull from other films to incorporate within a film that they are working on. And Chloe Zhao is no different. She pulled from a lot of films of, of what inspired her to make this film and, and what she drew upon to make Eternals. And this is what she had to say about the process of making this film and what inspired her, what films are we could potentially see come across in Eternals. And this is what she had to say. Particularly with the team at Marvel, our visual effects team, the action units, the design teams, we watched Terrence Malick's films, particularly The Tree of Life and The New World. We watched The, the Revenant a lot and Interstellar a lot. We watched Blade Runner 2049 and a film called Samsara. We watched that a lot. Obviously, 2001 A Space Odyssey was very important too. So these were films we had on repeat. And of course, there's many other things in my life that I've watched that snuck into it. So when you bring up Interstellar, 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, the Revenant, Blade Runner 2049, again, big, huge, grand, epic sci-fi films that I think we're going to see come across in this movie in some way, shape, or form. And seeing kind of the Tree of Life, the Revenant, these very intimate kind of family revenge films at the same time too, in the particular case of Revenge with the Revenant. But I'm really, really excited to see what she's able to do. I, I know that she did a lot of practical work on this movie. And even though there's going to obviously be VFX, I'm really excited to see all these grand big sets that come into play. So there's a lot to really look forward to. And I'm really excited to see where we kind of draw upon with with Eternals moving forward. But kind of just hearing all this stuff just, again, gets me really excited for what we're going to really kind of get with this and, and what could potentially really come moving forward. So I'm really excited about this, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what we can get with Eternals in the next couple of weeks. And you can get your tickets now on Fandango, AMC Theaters, wherever you have a movie theater near you. Tickets are now on sale to buy for the Eternals. And again, I do think this is going to be the first one to cross $100 million. We'll see if that happens, and we'll see in the next couple of weeks what the, the buzz for Eternals is looking like. Is it just as big as Shang-Chi? was is it even bigger is it less all that is going to be coming the next couple weeks and we'll have it right here for you on the sam basal podcast so what do you guys think about all this news coming about the eternals the posters that came out the tickets that are on sale now let me know down below and leave your thoughts and staying within the realm of disney which and the mcu is owned by disney the last thing that I want to talk about on the Sam Bissell podcast today is, of course, the non-surprising retirement of the president of Disney's film department, Disney Studios, Alan Horn, which it was reported by all the trades yesterday that Alan Horn is set to retire at the end of the year, which is no surprise whatsoever. It was always kind of reported once Bob Iger was going to step down after last year, that once he was going to kind of leave the company altogether this year, that Alan Horn was probably going to follow him as well. And Alan Horn has just... He's an absolute legend in the industry. I mean, what he was able to do over at Warner Brothers and how unceremoniously that that kind of ended where he helped create mega franchises like the Nolan trilogy and the Harry Potter franchise and how those were really, when you look at the 2000s, they were some of the, especially the late 2000s, they were some of the biggest films of that time period. And they were really kind of the big blockbusters that people were really looking forward to right now. And then Alan Horn, of course, comes over and he helps kind of usher in this transition of Disney buying all these different IPs from 
from Marvel to Lucasfilm to, to Fox and then being able to kind of help transition, especially on the film side of things, into making sure that the quality was able to be sustained as it was throughout the years and that Disney, again, Disney could still have the success even without him in the next couple of years, but especially during the 2010s, really that decade, Disney had one of the greatest runs a studio will ever have from having the biggest domestic release of all time with Star Wars The Force Awakens and then that was a major event film in 2015 to having not, not one, not two, but three, maybe even four, five big event films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe from the first Avengers film to Captain America Civil War to Black Panther and then to Avengers Infinity War and then of course leading up to Avengers Endgame which at one point was the highest grossing film of all time until earlier this year when Avatar reclaimed that spot. So for Alan Horn, he's had just an unprecedented run and has helped and helped usher Disney, especially their their film studio, as a true empire within Hollywood and really kind of the big force around the industry. And it's not just those franchises. When you look at the retelling of all these Disney animated classics, those are billion dollar hits now with Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Jungle Book and also... You look at the animated division with Disney Animated Studios, and then of course, continuing the 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 partnership that they have with Pixar, they had at least five or six films annually, usually in the highest grossing films of two the, of that year, and then sometimes they would have four or five, maybe even six. I know, especially in 2019, they had around seven or eight billion dollar films that took up the entirety of the top 10 worldwide box office hits. It's just an un, absolutely unprecedented run. And if there was a Hall of Fame for executives, I mean, there's there's a short list. You have maybe Kathleen Kennedy. You could have Bob Chapek in there maybe, but and, and, and a bunch, bunch of others. But really... Alan Horn has to be on the top of that list somewhere when you look at the Mount Rushmore's. What he was able to do at Warner Brothers and then transition that over to Disney is just unbelievable. And I think it, again, truly is one of the great, great runs we have ever, ever seen from a film executive to build up a studio into the empire that it is today and just be a brute force where other studios feared going up against a Disney film, not just a Marvel film or Star Wars film, but any kind of Disney film, you really kind of feared going up against it for the most part. And that's due to what Bob Iger, Alan Horn, and everybody was able to do at Disney at that time period. So again, I, I wish Alan Horn a a, a, a well restful and, and well-deserved retirement and whatever he does next, I think is going to be exciting to see. But yeah, I'm sure he's just going to be sitting on the beach, enjoying retirement and just kind of not having to worry about the stress of these kind of jobs right now. So Again, just an incredible run, an incredible career as far as we know it right now. Who knows if he comes back in a couple of years, but an incredible, incredible job. And, and it'll be very interesting to see how Disney follows that up moving forward. I know a lot of, uh, of their eyes are on streaming right now. We'll see if anything else holds in the next couple of years with their studios as well. But overall, guys, what did you think about Alan Horn's tenure as the president chairman of Disney Studios? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. But with that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the San Basel Podcast. Once again, everybody, thank you so much as always for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and so much more. Also, make sure to tune in on to the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Gold Driven Professionals, geared toward 
improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, WrestleMania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. Also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Bissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Guys, everyone, thank you once again so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening. <laughs>